0: All right, so so this morning, as we come to the end of this message, uh, one of the things that you might assume is that Jesus is concluding the sermon here, but the reality is, is Jesus has actually been concluding this sermon way before this. Uh, For those of you who've been following along, what you might know or maybe don't know is that Jesus has actually been concluding this sermon since the moment he brought up the broad and narrow road. So Jesus, essentially, let's, say, let's pretend that the Sermon on the Mount is a flight that we're taking, it's a journey that we're on. When Jesus brought up the broad and narrow road, he was, he was like the flight attendant saying, hey, the, the, the fasten your seatbelt light came on, put your trays up, we are descending. So the plane has been descending since we brought up the broad and narrow road. And so what Jesus has done, like any good preacher, at the end of his sermon is he's essentially giving an altar call. And he's saying, okay, I've given you all the information you need to know, and now it's time to make a decision. Are you going to choose me, or are you not going to choose me? So he begins with two roads, which we looked at two weeks ago. Then last week, Pastor Hannibal just did an awesome job talking to us about the two trees, and then he concludes with the two builders. There's two roads, there's two trees, and there's two builders. Jesus wants you to make a decision. Here's what Jesus is saying. See, a lot of people want to just hear the Sermon on the Mount and say, man, what a great moral teacher. I could really learn a lot from that guy. What a a great example. That's not what Jesus wants. Jesus preaches in such a way. The whole sermon has done it, but now at the end, he's making it clear. I either want you to crown me as king or crucify me. Crown me or crucify me, but you can't have me in the middle. Either I'm your everything or I'm nothing, but you can't have me in the middle. It's time to make a choice. Okay? Okay. So Jesus here, the plane is about to descend. He gets to the tail end of it, and he says, look, we've already talked about the two roads. We've already talked about the two trees, and now we're going to talk about the two builders. Jesus says that there are two types of builders. Every person in here is a builder. Every person in here is building something. The question is, are you a wise builder or are you a foolish builder? And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. So, what Jesus does in this passage is he gives us three areas that we can look at in order to determine what type of builder we are. So, maybe you're sitting here and this is your first time at church, or maybe it's your 400th time at church, and and, and you want to know am I a wise builder or am I a foolish builder? Well, these three areas are the areas that Jesus gives us in order to determine what type of builders we are. He says that if you want to know what type of builder you are, you have to look at the structure you're building the suffering you're experiencing, and the salvation you're embracing. Want to know what type of builder you are? You have to look at the structure you're building, the suffering you're experiencing, and the salvation you're embracing. So we're going to look through each one, and I want you to diagnose yourself as we go through this. So the first area, Jesus says, we can look at is the structure that we're building. Look what he says here in the passage. In the passage, Jesus says... Let me get a water break. All right. So in the passage, Jesus says... Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then in verse 26, he says, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. So Jesus says, follow with me here, there's only two types of builders. There's a wise and there's a foolish. It says the wise are building their house on rock. And the foolish are building their house on sand. Now, here's the thing that you might not know. Back in the ancient Near East where Jesus is and where he's speaking this message, the weather was similar to how the weather is today in the Near East, right? He, he, the weather in those days was, it's a very dry, humid area. Not, not, not No, sorry, it's a very dry, uh, hot area. Not a lot of water, not a lot of rain. But what was very unique about this region is that when it rained, it rained, okay? There was flood seasons, and so, all of a sudden, it would be totally dry, not a drop of rain, and when it rained, it would never drizzle in Israel. It would be torrential rains and floods, and then it would stop again. And so, what, one of the things that, that people would have to do is they would have to figure out ways to try to keep hold of that water when it showed up because it wasn't a common. When it came, it was, it was sudden, and then it was gone. Here's the thing about that type of rain, though, that... 90% of the weather, house on, a house on sand is perfectly fine. But when it rains, everybody knew your house was on sand, including you, because there was no house anymore. See? Jesus is saying, you can build your life on whatever foundation you want, but it's better to build your, your, your life on a foundation that stands all weather and not just the one that can handle good weather. Okay? So we're all building our life on something. Jesus says, or one commentator says, in light of explaining what Jesus says, he says, when you build your life on Jesus, you're building your life on the rock. When you build your life on anything else, you are building your life on sand. Anything other than Jesus, it's sand. So let me explain it to you this way. Maybe you're a student and your identity comes from that. That's what you're actually building your life on, your education. Maybe for you, it's your career. Or maybe it's the money you're making, or maybe it's the children you have, or the person you're married to, or maybe it's you're single and it's the person you want to be married to. You're building your life on someone you haven't even met yet, right? Every person in here is building their life on something. Every person in here is finding their primary identity in something. And whatever that is, if it's not Jesus, it's sand if it's not Jesus, it will let you down. So I want to make that crystal clear. It will let you down. Now, here's another thing I want to bring up. If you can put up my two points. Whenever you're building a structure, right? Anybody who knows about building things, you know that there's two parts to building a structure. The most important part is the foundation you're laying, Right? And then the second part is the house that you actually build on it or whatever it is that you're building. Now, I'm not a builder, right? I've never built anything in my life. I'm not good with my hands and I avoid the outdoors as much as I can. Like I'm just I'm just that guy, okay? So most of the stuff that's built in my house is because of my wife and my father-in-law. That's the only reason why stuff gets done at my house. Okay? I can talk, but I can't do anything else. All right. I can barely do that now. So so whenever you're building a structure, the first thing you have to do is lay the right foundation. The foundation that you lay is essential and will determine whether that structure will hold up over time, right? Now, here's the thing that I, when I first became a believer, when I first started reading the Sermon on the Mount, I actually really didn't understand this passage. I misunderstood it, and here's why. And maybe you have made the same mistake I made. When I first started reading this passage, I said, oh, okay, I get it. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying that there are good people and there are bad people. And good people build their house on rock and bad people build their house on sand. Shame, shame, bad people. Right? I always thought that's what this passage meant. But here's what's crazy. That's not what Jesus is doing. Here's why. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's no such thing as good people. And if you're here and you think you're a good person, it's because you're comparing yourself to a worse person. But there's no such thing as good people. No one is righteous, not even one, Psalm 14 says. Not even one. Well, there was one, but he got killed for it. Okay? So when you approach this, do you, do you would think it's, I, like I said, I always thought it's the religious, uh, 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 legalistic, uh, uh, disciplined, conservative folk that build their life on the rock. And all those otherworldly people, those pagans are out there building their life on the sand. But here's how you know that's not what Jesus is saying. Here's how you know. There's actually several reasons why you know that's not what Jesus is doing, comparing the religious people and the irreligious people. Because when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, the people that Jesus is criticizing is not the tax collectors. It's not the worldly people. It's the religious people. It's the religious people, right? He's saying, hey, you've been told to pray like this, but I say pray like this. You've been told to give like this, but I'm telling you to give like that. The person in the group that Jesus is criticizing is not the bad people. Yeah, obviously bad people are building their life on sand, but that one's obvious. All you need is two eyes to see that. But Jesus is talking not about the bad people, but about the people who think they're good. That's what he's talking about. And you know that's the case because in the passage he says that both groups hear his word. Right? Bad people don't hear God's word. They don't. They can care less about God's word. But religious people listen to God's word. And they come to church, and they check the box, and they give the money, and they sing the songs, but they're actually building their life on sand because they're not finding their security, their righteousness, and hope in Jesus. They're finding it in themselves. So yeah, bad people, those bad people we always think of, yeah, they're on sand, but that's obvious. But Jesus is talking about the religious people who think they're good. Those people are also building their life on sand, okay? That's who he is criticizing and exposing, and that's why, at the end of his life, it's not the pimps and the prostitutes that killed Jesus, it's the Pharisees and the religious people that killed Jesus, because they know, you're criticizing me. I'm trying to save myself, and you're saying, I can't do that. I don't like that, so I'm going to kill you, okay? So just, 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 just I just want to make sure we're all on the same page here, okay? Now... The first thing you got to do when you construct a house if you, is you have to lay the foundation. The second thing though, once the foundation is laid, I remember uh, uh, a couple decades ago when my parents, my parents were building a house in Bartlett. Um, my mom was like that crazy owner who was always driving up on the workers and telling them what to do while the house was being built. I don't want my bathroom there and you better not put that there. She was crazy. Like Every, week, every day she was there, they were like, dude, there she comes, oh my gosh, right? But my dad and my brother and I, we would come every so often. I remember for a long time, it was just a hole in the ground. And then there was concrete in the hole. And I remember thinking, okay, well, that's kind of important, but where's the house? You know? At some point, you got to build a house. But here's what's important, guys. Here's what you, I don't want you to miss this. Jesus says that those who obey his words, not just hear it. A lot of people hear God's word. A lot of people read God's word. But like James says, if all you are is a hearer of the word, not a doer of the word, then who cares? Right. It's just information then, okay? But, but 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 so so following me here, there's people, religious people, and I would even put, so I'm putting people both who build their life on sand and the people who build their life on the rock, because they're both guilty of this. Yeah. You hear God's word, you can actually be living and built on the rock, but the problem is, is that you're not actually doing something about what you're hearing, Okay? So this is true for people who are on the rock and people who are not on the rock. You could hear it and do nothing about it. Here's the problem with not obeying God's word. When you hear God's word but don't actually do what it says, then what you're doing is you're, you're, you're doing life not based on his specifications, not based on divine specifications on how to do life, but on your own specifications on how to do life. See, I don't know about you, but when I buy a product almost always from Ikea. I don't know how to put it together, right? And so what I do is I got to look at the manual because I didn't build it. I got to look at the manual because the the person who built it can tell me how to put it together because they're the one who built it. See, but what a lot of us do, even people, even Christians, even people who are building their life on rock, we hear God's word, but we don't actually obey God's word. So we don't take God's Directions for how to do marriage. We don't take God's directions for how to do parenting We don't take God's directions on how to do singleness We don't take God's direction on how to manage our money. So then when our marriage falls apart And our children are crazy and our money is a mess. We blame God Come on now I'm pretty sure I'm preaching right now Can I get a witness? See that's that's the thing. That's the thing. I I can't tell you how many people will sit in my office Christians now I'm not talking about the sand people, okay? I'm talking about the rock people. Man, man, my marriage isn't working. Man, my finances are falling apart. My singleness is terrible. Well, right, okay, you're hearing God's word, but are you obeying it? Amen. Well, don't be surprised when it falls apart then. Because he's the one that built it. He created it, not you. Amen. Of course it's not working. Can't you just hear it. You got to do it. So the, the house you're constructing... It's so important. You know, one of the things that I didn't realize, but it's, it's true now that I, that I think about it, is that you have to make sure that the house you are building is one that not only is in light with God's word, right? You're obeying but but we even as people who are believers, people who have placed their faith in Jesus, one of the things that, that this passage can do, right, you can take this passage and you can say, you tell them, Pastor Will, you know, the people who are on the rock, you tell those non-Christians, you tell them that they're not building their life on the rock, you tell them, you, you let them know because they're the worst kind of people. Here's the problem. You can have the right foundation and be building the wrong house. That's what a lot of us are doing. That happens to me all the time. Yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah, I'm on the rock. But a lot of times, I look at even the ministry that I'm creating. Many times, the ministry I'm creating is meant to glorify me, not God. Yeah, I have my money, and I'll give God a couple dollars here and there. But, but man, I, I, my money is mine. Because, man, I'm a pastor. I'm broke. I do enough for you, Jesus. You don't need my money. You already got my time. Right? Man, money's a big one, guys. I'm going to go there because we need to talk about it, okay? Here's the thing about money, right? So money, everyone's like, hey, Jesus, you can have that, and Jesus, you can have that, and you can have that life. But here's here's what a lot of us do, right? The people who built their life on the rock, here's what we do. We're like, yeah, I put my life on the rock, but what we we don't tell anybody is that we have some summer homes by the beach. (laughs) Right? Man, I'm on the rock, but man, don't touch my summer home, Jesus. That's my home. And for a lot of us, money is one of our summer homes. It is. And so we go there, and that's where everything, hey, anytime money gets tight, anytime money gets tight, the person that loses out of the money is God. Sorry, God, not this month. I need my 577 channels on DirecTV, but not, 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 you ain't getting no money from me this month, God. I need 27 cooking channels, but you ain't getting my money. Right. Listen, follow with me here. If God doesn't have your money, God doesn't have you. That's why Jesus says that you can't serve two masters. Actually, I think this is part of the reason why Jesus says that it's hard for a rich man to enter heaven. Because one of the one of the strongest sands that you can build your life on is money. If you are a very ultra wealthy person, it, it, there's, a, there's a lot of storms that can't shake you because you have money to fix it. The problem is that we're all living on a trap door, and one day God pulls the lever, and it doesn't matter how much money you have, okay? And so listen, listen, if you are a disciple of Jesus, and you are not, and listen, I'm not saying this because I need your money. Tri Village is doing fine, okay? Okay, it's not because I need your money. So don't, oh, here comes the pastor asking for money. I could care less about that. If you are a disciple of Jesus, if you claim to live on the rock, and you are not giving money. And you might not actually be a disciple of Jesus, because if I can't give God my money, how am I going to give God my heart? And this is some of you are like, man, this I don't like this pastor. He's getting in my face, and this is all so confrontational. And and listen, listen, if I'm stepping on your toes, I apologize because I was actually aiming for your heart. Okay. The house that you're building matters. And so often I find myself, right, Christians, people on the rock, we're judging the people on the sand, like, man, look, look at those pagans, look what they're doing, I can't believe it. they got to build their life on Jesus. But you can have the right foundation and be building the wrong house, be building a house that's not in light of God's, in light of God's word, in light of his specifications, you're just doing what you want to do because that's what I do, it's your summer home, he can't touch that. I, that's my Hey, God, you can take my marriage, but don't touch my money. You can have my money, but don't touch my kids. You can have this, but don't touch my career. Don't touch my hobbies. Those are my hobbies. That's a major problem, guys. The house you're constructing matters. Not just the foundation you're laying, but the house you're constructing. And I always, I, I, the, the, the commentator that brought it up, I was reading through commentaries this week. And man, every, every week when I'm studying God's word, there's always something that blows me away. And this was that part this week. And uh, it was James Montgomery Boyce, who's this pastor who died several years ago. He was a Presbyterian pastor in Philadelphia. And he's the one that brings this up, the whole concept of the right foundation, but uh, the wrong house, right? And he takes a passage that I had never seen before in scripture. Like I thought, oh, this is a strong point, but I don't know if there's biblical support for it. But he took a passage that I had never seen before. I've read it, but I had never connected it with the Sermon on the Mount. Now that I've seen it, I'll never forget the connection because even though the language is so similar. Look what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Listen to this. He says, by the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a what? A wise builder. Same language Jesus is using, right? And someone else is building on it. But then he says, but each one should build with care. Listen to this. This is crazy. It's literally like Paul was preaching, like explaining this passage. He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, follow me here. Because I always thought, when I remember when I first came to Jesus, I didn't know this. I thought that the only people that were going to be judged at the end were the people living on sand. But according to Jesus and according to Paul, there's a judgment for the people that know Jesus too. Not necessarily to get into heaven or not, but God's going to judge what you did. Okay? Verse 12. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, he says, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So you're like, like, I already built my life on the rock. I'm good. No, no, hold up. Yeah, you're in heaven. You can't lose your salvation. But if all you're building is with, with straws and hay, don't be surprised when all of it is burned up. You might convince us the people around you, but you're not going to get past Jesus with that. You can't. So not only when you're, one of the ways you can tell whether you are on sand or on rock is by looking at the structure you are building, both the foundation you are laying and the house that you're building. The second area that Jesus says that we need to look at in order to determine what type of people we are, if we are a wise builder or a Foolish builder is not just by the structure we're building, but by the suffering we're experiencing. How you manage suffering will tell you what type of builder you are. Look what Jesus says here in the passage. He says, verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. Verse 27, the rain came down, the streams rose. The winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. So, water break. Follow with me here. Jesus says that regardless of whether you are a wise builder or a foolish builder, there are going to be storms in life. So if you think that coming to Jesus means there's no more storms, then, man, you got the wrong weather report. (laughs) Someone lied to you. Actually, uh, a few weeks ago, we, 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 baptized, we baptized Alex Constantino, um, uh, the young guy, who uh, um, the Filipino Asian guy who came here and came to know the Lord. He was from Bartlett High School, and uh, one of the guys I went to school with, he got baptized. Ever since Alex got baptized, things have gone horrible. Just this past week, his dad passed away suddenly, and he has a wake today, right now, today after the service. That I'm going to later. So, so follow with me here. Things got harder when he started walking with Jesus. You know why, right? Because before you come to Jesus, Satan's on your side, right? You don't have an enemy, and if you do have an enemy, it's a father in heaven who loves you and wants to save you. But the moment you come to Jesus, now you have three enemies: the flesh, the world, and the enemy, and they all hate you. So nowhere in the Bible. So if you've come to Jesus and you think it's going to get easier because of it, I don't know where you read that in the Bible. I don't know who told you that because that's not biblical. Storms are going to come regardless. Here's the difference though. The people who are built on rock are ready for those storms and the people who are built on sand are not ready for those storms. Think about this. Think about this. When you build your house on sand, what you're actually doing without even realizing it is you're saying... I don't think there's going to be a storm. Right? Because why would you build your house on sand? So if someone warns you against something and you're like, ah, no, 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 I'm going to just go ahead and build it. What you're actually saying is in your worldview, there's no space for a storm. It doesn't fit your worldview. Storms are not a thing. That's why I can build my house on sand. The problem is storms are a thing. And we're all going to go through them. And how you manage it will determine... But we'll we'll show what the foundation is. Here's the thing, guys. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about how, and you could go to my two points under this. Suffering is a reality that all of us are going to have to go through. And one of the ways that you can tell what type of builder you are is how you navigate the reality of suffering. People who build their life on sand don't expect it. They have no uh, theology for it. Like, there's no space for suffering. It doesn't fit in the worldview that they have. It doesn't. Back to the religious people I brought up earlier, okay? Follow with me here. Religious people, here's why religious people, people who are trying to say, and I mean religious in the worst way possible. Religious people, people who are trying to save themselves, not going to Jesus, they can't handle suffering. Here's why. Because when you're trying to save yourself and you're trying to earn God's love and God's approval, when God sends suffering, it confuses you. Because you're like, wait, wait, you can't do bad stuff to me because I've only done good stuff. See? A religious person has no space in their worldview for suffering because they're trying to get... Hey, God, I've been scratching your back for 30 years now. You can't give me cancer. You can't give me divorce. You can't give me bankruptcy. Religious people handle suffering terribly. Suffering will always reveal whether you are building your house on the rock or whether you are building your house on the sand. Here's the thing, right? On, On the surface... Uh, uh, remember, remember the, the weather in Israel, 80% of the time it's, it's hot, right? Not a drop of rain. 80% of the time when the sun's out, a house built on sand and a house built on rock look exactly the same, right? Amen. If it's not raining, you wouldn't know what the house is built on. You find out when the storms come. That's when you find out what, you look at your unsaved neighbor, you're like, man, I don't even know why I'm trying, Jesus. He has more money than me. He has more uh, uh, success than me. Uh, or, or, Or maybe you're single. You're like, why does that person have a boyfriend or a girlfriend? I don't, right? You get discouraged. But listen, everyone's house looks great when the sun's out. Everybody's house looks great. It's when the rains come that you find out the foundation. Okay. So, so, so now, here's, here's something that I, that I need you to, to, to see. Because people who build their life on the sand don't have an expectation of suffering, when it shows up, not only do they get angry at God because they're religious people, but, but the other thing is, at best, the, at the, their best response to suffering is what they do is they try to numb themselves and act like suffering isn't there. They just numb it. They try to, they try to put their, hand in the, their head in the sand and just try to numb it. And here, here's what I mean. So this week, as I was navigating my, these throat pains, I was like, man, like, what am I going to do? Like, I got I to do this wedding, and I got to preach, and you know, all this stuff. So one of the things that I used to do when I was younger, my dad had this, uh, this little uh, green spray, uh, medicine spray that you would spray in the back of your throat, and it would have this tingling feeling, and then everything would feel better, right? So the moment my throat starts hurting, I'm like, oh, I know exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to get my green spray, man. That's my, my trustworthy, go-to throat. Uh, uh, procedure, right? So I'm, I'm looking, I'm like, Lily, you know what I got to do? I did not even know what the name of them is. I got to get that green spray, <laughs> right? But then Lily told me something that I never knew. I found out that that spray doesn't actually fix your problem. It's an anesthetic. So here's what it does. It numbs the problem. So you think you're better, but you're not. Amen. Just the pain is gone. But everything is still falling apart right? That was like, it was like my whole childhood was a lie. Like, I, was like, I was like, wait, what? My green spray doesn't work. But that's what a lot of people do. Well, people, because they don't have a, a place for suffering in their worldview, they just spray it. Just numb it. I'm going to just keep numbing. it. I'm going to keep putting it under the carpet. I'm going to act like it's not there and hopefully it'll go away. But that's not how suffering works. Here's what happens with people who are building their life on sand, okay? And I would argue, if we're not careful, even people who are building their life on rock, but but primarily the people who build their life on sand. What you do is because you're trying to save yourself, and again, that's whether you're religious or an atheist or agnostic, wherever you are, everyone's trying to save themselves based on some sort of standard, right? When you're trying to save yourself and suffering shows up, because you don't want to go to God, you do everything in your power to try to fix the problem yourself, everything in your power. When there's no other option, here's how you pray. Here's what your prayer life looks like. When when you live on sand, there's no other option. Instead of actually going to God and having a relationship with him, you use use prayer like a flare gun. Like you're under siege and you grab prayer and you shoot the flare up. I got no other option. Send back up. That's what prayer looks like for those people. Everything's falling apart. Oh, man, they're super spiritual when, when times are hard. Man, when the storms are out, They're on their knees, and they're coming to church, and they're praying. Oh, man, it's all about Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus when the storms are out. Okay? So they they, they shoot the flare up. Then God shows up, and here's what they do to God. They're like, God, here's what I need you to do, brother. I need you to fix my problem, just that specific problem, and don't touch anything else in my life. Fix that, but don't touch anything else. I shot the flare. I need your help. You're lucky I'm even asking for that. Do what I need and get out. That's how sand people pray. Okay? Now, C.S. Lewis has a, has a quote that, that captures this, and he's my favorite author for many reasons, but you'll see why just in quotes like this. And look how he describes people who pray when they're in sand. He says, when I was a child, I often had a toothache. He says, and I knew that if I went to my mother, she would give me something which would deaden the pain for that night and let me get to sleep. Listen to this. But I did not go to my mother, at least not till the pain became very bad. And the reason I did not go was this. I did not doubt she would give me the aspirin, but I knew she would also do something else. I knew she would take me to the dentist the next morning. Listen to this. I could not get what I wanted out of her without getting something more, which I did not want. I wanted immediate relief from pain, but I could not get it without having my teeth set permanently right. And I knew those dentists. I knew they started fiddling about with all sorts of other teeth, which had not yet begun to ache. They would not let sleeping dogs lie. That's how sand people are, though. And a lot of times, it's how rock people are if we're not careful. God, I tried everything else. I got nothing else. Here goes the flare. Come down, but only fix that. Don't touch the rest of the teeth. Deal with that tooth, but don't touch the rest of the teeth. That's how we are. So how you handle the reality of suffering will tell you if you are a wise builder or a foolish builder. But another way that you could tell under this, this heading of suffering, what type of builder you are, is by looking at the actual results of suffering. Here's what I mean by the results of suffering. When the smoke clears, what's actually left? That'll tell you. It'll actually reveal to you what you're building your life on, okay? See, suffering, a good storm, will always expose the quality of the work that was done. That's what a good storm does. A good storm will always reveal the quality of what you're building your life on. Here's the problem, though. The problem is for a lot of us, because many of us are on sand, or at the very least, we're on rock building wrong things, a good storm comes and the whole thing falls apart. I I have a few illustrations to to illustrate this to you and to give you an idea of how this works. One, One illustration I came across this week is... Uh, there's a pastor uh, who had a friend of his who was a counselor at an Ivy League school, right? And so he's talking to this friend of his about the students at this Ivy League school. And this guy said something that was very interesting when I heard it. He said that many of the students in these Ivy League schools struggle with depression and hopelessness. And when he asked him why, he said, well, think about it. These kids are at this Ivy League school because at their school, the school they came from, they were the smartest, best-looking people. Then they show up at Harvard and Yale and realize that they're nowhere near the top of that list. So their whole life, they had built their life on education and on being smart. Then when they surround themselves with smarter people, their house crumbles. The sand has shifted. And they're no longer worth it. Guys, that's the problem with building your life on something other than Jesus. Right? If it's your career, when you lose your career, you're not, you're not losing your career, you're losing your God. It's not a career change, it's a religion change. That's why uh, uh, Tim Keller in his book, Counterfeit Gods, he begins the book, um, it was written back in 2009 when, when all the recession stuff was happening. He said that there were so many rich CEOs that committed suicide through the recession. Because when they lost their money, they lost their everything. That, that's, that's who they were. Mm-hmm. That was their identity. Amen. And like I said earlier, I, I think that many times, maybe I haven't said it, maybe that was the previous service, but I'll repeat it just in case, that I think that some of the hardest people to come to Jesus are rich people. Because if you're ultra rich, you can cover any problem. It's hard to see the sand when you got money. That's why poor people want money so much. We all want enough money so that we don't need God anymore maybe God has you broke so that you keep coming to him okay so 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 so, so follow with me here these people they, they, they're building their life on something other than Jesus and then when, when everything when the storms come their storms reveal that Jesus isn't what they were building their life on. That's, that's actually how my life was. I, I remember when, when I was, so let me back up. So last, last night, I was doing this wedding. And I'm convinced that part of the reason why my voice went is because the enemy was trying to keep me from preaching at this wedding. Here's why. Because the wedding that I was doing was from a guy, one of my best friends, back when I was in high school. And literally, I haven't seen this guy and all the friends that I had essentially since I was 18 years old. Because one of the mistakes I made when I became a believer when I started following God is I thought if I'm gonna follow Jesus, I gotta cut off all the bad people from my life. So instead of reaching them, I judged them and I just cut them off. Because I thought I was better than them. So for over a decade, we didn't talk. Well, here's how this guy ended up reaching out to me. Tri Village sends out a mailer every year. His mom gets the mailer. His mom calls him and says, Hey, you know how you're getting married? I think one of your friends is a pastor. So he calls me, he, he messages me, he's like, hey, I, I don't know if you're a priest or a pastor, but I, do you do weddings? Like, he, just, he didn't even know what I, what I was. And I was like, yeah, I actually do weddings. He's like, oh, man, that can you do it? And I was like, yeah. He's like, F yeah. Like, that was his response, like, <laughs> over, over the phone. He's like, F yeah. I was like, oh, okay, yeah, 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 amen, brother, you know? I didn't realize how, how conservative I've become. I was like, oh, wow. I, like, <laughs> like, startled me a little bit, <laughs> right? So, so I'm doing this wedding. Last, yesterday, I'm at this. We, we did the rehearsal dinner on Friday. We did the wedding yesterday, right? And so I step into this room, and he was essentially the only one that knew I was coming. None of the other guys I grew up with knew I was going to be there. So I walk into this restaurant for the rehearsal dinner, and they're like, what's Will Franco doing here? And a lot of them didn't even know I was a pastor, let alone a Christian, right? So I walk in, and I start talking to these guys and connecting with these guys. And you know what the Lord reminded me of as I was interacting with these guys? Well, two things. They were the reason why I started Tri Village. Those, those five guys that were the groomsmen, well, they were the people I had in mind when I started this church. And I said, I want to have a church where those five guys can walk in and not feel judged and feel like they're loved and feel like they understand everything that's being said. That's my standard. So I don't know if you know, I hope it, this church is connected with you, but those are the five guys this church started for. So hopefully all of them will be here one day, but right now they are not, okay? But, but I walk into the, the, this room and in light of this passage, I'm thinking about the passage and what the Lord reminded me of over this weekend is that these guys were my foundation for a really long time. Like they were what I was building my life on. I was building my life on women and on these five dudes. Their acceptance of me, their approval of me was where I found my security and my identity and my self-worth. So one of the things that started happening when I was 18 and I started going to church, they started cutting me off because I wasn't partying anymore and I wasn't drinking anymore. I wasn't the same guy anymore. So they, I was distancing myself, but they were also pushing me away too. And there was one of them in particular who claimed to be a Christian. And when I finally found out what Christianity was, I looked him in the face and I'm like, dude, you're not a Christian, bro. That didn't help. (laughs) But the thing is, is that these guys were the people I was building my life on. And the Lord reminded me of how much he's brought me through. And, and, and how much he's taking me out of. And, and being in that presence, I, I remember that part of the reason I clung to the rock as my foundation was because I had lost my other one. I never really chose Jesus because he was the better option. I chose Jesus because he was the only option. I, I, I didn't remember that until this weekend and how much those guys meant to me. They still mean a lot to me, but they're just no longer my God. Okay? And I have a friend of mine who is a pastor here in Streamwood, and his his name's Corey, and uh, him and I got lunch this week, and he told me how he didn't grow up in church, he grew up in Oregon, which, for those of you who don't know, Oregon's a very unchurched area, right, he grew up in Oregon, no one in his family was a Christian, and his dad and him both idolized baseball, and baseball was what was going to give him a degree, he was going to go to the league, to the MLB, that was his God, baseball, 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 he said that one of the things that happened his junior year, he said he was really good, he's like, he's like, I don't know, If I ever would have gone professional, he's like, I for sure would have gotten a scholarship though for college. He's like, his junior year, it was a routine play. He was second base. Uh, So he gets the ball and he throws it to first base and the ball fell short. And he said that from that moment on, he started struggling with this thing called yips. Yips? Is how you say it? Yips. And it's a thing that baseball players and golfers struggle with in particular. Here's what it is. It's this anxiety thing that happens to you that once it happens, you can't throw a baseball ever again. Like... He said that he's like, I would make that throw all the time, normal. He's like, once that happened, once I started struggling with it, he's like, I went to counselors. My parents spent a bunch of money because this was going to be my scholarship. This was going to be my career. He's like, well, from the moment it happened, I literally could not throw the ball from second base to first base. He's like, I, oh, he's like, before, I would only see the guy, the guy I was throwing to. He's like, now, all of a sudden, I was thinking about the cars in the parking lot. Like, what if I it and I hit a car? And What if I underthrow? It? He said, all this anxiety came over him, and his career was ruined. He went from being a starter to being at the end of the bench. And he said, what happened, though, he said, that was actually the best thing that ever happened to him, because he's lost his God. He, he lost his sand. And when he lost his sin, he had nowhere else to turn than he came to do the rock. And that's when he met Jesus. He said, looking back then, he said it was the worst thing that could have happened. Looking back now, he said it's the best thing that could have happened. God literally took his foundation out from under him. So that he would cling to the only foundation that will get him through. Listen. So this is weird, but let me put it to you like this. Suffering then can be a good thing storms might be the best thing that can happen to you. You know why? Because every, and every commentator that I looked at said this. Every storm that you go through here on earth is a foreshadowing of the ultimate storm you're going to go through when you're judged by God. So what God does in his grace is he gives you storms to, re, to, to show you that you're not building your life on the right thing. If you ignore those storms, you're not going to be able to ignore that final one. So storms are great. You know what's crazy about Christianity, though, when you think about it, then Christianity is is so unique because here's what Christianity does. When you build your life on Jesus, not only are you ready for suffering when it comes, but all suffering does is reinforce the decision you already made. Does that make sense? If I'm building my life on Jesus and I suffer and I lose my job or I lose a family member, that's okay. Not because it's okay, but it reminds me why I chose Jesus in the first place. Suffering not only does it not crush me, it reinforces the right decision I made. It shows me why I chose Jesus in the first place because he's the only foundation that can't be taken away. So, if you go back to the three areas. The first area you can look at to determine what type of builder you are is by looking at the structure you are building. The second area you can look at is by looking at the suffering you're experiencing. And then the third and final area is by looking at the salvation that you're embracing. Now, let me reread, uh, not, not reread, but let me go back to the end of this passage. This is part of the passage that most people just ignore because the sermon's over by now. But I would argue is one of the most important parts of the entire sermon. In verse 29 and verse 28, we see how people finally get to respond to what Jesus says. Look what it says. It says, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed. Or the Greek word there is, they were astonished. They were blown away by his amazing teaching. At his teaching. Because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So follow with me here. The word crowd in Greek, here's what it means. The word crowd is a group of non-committed people who congregate around any cause. That's what it actually means in Greek. A group of non-committed people who congregate around any cause. So if you're a crowd member here, you're like, yeah, go Jesus. But then tomorrow, then, uh, the Me Too movement, yeah, go Me Too. Yeah, go you know, whatever politician I'm going after. You just get excited about everything because you're a crowd. Member, a group of non committed people who congregate around any cause. So, crowds do. So, follow with me here because this last one is easily the biggest distinction between the wise and the foolish, the wise builder and the foolish builder. Okay, the crowd hear Jesus speaking, they are amazed and they are astonished. They are blown away. They are tweeting his quotes. They're just, oh my gosh, this guy is amazing. But they leave the same way they showed up. Nothing changes. Now, here's what's important. I, and this, is, this, this really blew my mind when I saw it. The thing that they most saw, and they were amazed by his teaching because he's the best preacher of all time, but, but they said that he, they were attracted to the fact that he spoke with authority. Now, There's two things that Jesus needs to be in order for you to be saved. He needs to be Lord, but he also needs to be Savior. Okay? Most people are okay with Jesus being Lord. Most people. Actually, if you remember the passage from last week when Pastor Hannibal was speaking, it says that there's people who will go to Jesus and they'll say, Lord, Lord. Did I not do this? Did I not do this? Did I not do that? So they see Jesus as an authority, my Lord, but not as my Savior, because if you were my Savior, I wouldn't be giving you my track record. If you were my savior, I wouldn't be trying to impress you. Right? So it's easy to have Jesus as Lord. It's Jesus to have Jesus as an authority, someone that you learn from because he's a great moral teacher. But Jesus doesn't let you do that to him. Either you crown him or you kill him, but you can't have him in the middle. So a lot of people love Jesus as Lord. Hey, Jesus, you can be my authority, but you're not going to be my atonement. See, so these people, here's what, they, here's what they're saying. Hey, hey I'm, I'm perfectly fine with submitting to you, but I don't want to be saved by you. Jesus is saying, listen, listen. Jesus is saying, I don't need your astonishment. I need your adoration. What you need is not amazement. What you need is atonement. What you need is not information. What you need is salvation. Jesus is saying, look, look. if all you're doing is embracing me as Lord, then you're no different from all the other sand people. The people who are on the rock are the people who accept me as Lord and as Savior. That's what Jesus is saying. So, 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 so this is, watch this. I need you to see this. Jesus, I, I came across this passage this week in Acts chapter 4. And I just love the way that the Bible, you know, speaks on other parts of the Bible. Peter says, when he's talking to the religious leaders, right, the people who killed Jesus, he says to them, the stone that the builders rejected has become the corner stone. So Jesus is the rock that we needed, but according to Acts 4, when the rock showed up, we casted him away. We rejected. You know why? Not because we didn't want him as Lord, but because we didn't want him as Savior. Amen. See, because if I can, I can accept Jesus as Lord and still have a role in saving myself. Right? And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. There's a difference between spiritual debt and spiritual bankruptcy. I can do something about debt. I can't do anything about bankruptcy. So when I accept you as Lord, I'm saying, hey, I got some problems that I need some help with. So let me take the Sermon on the Mount and use those problems, you know, and fix those problems. See, everyone's cool with the Sermon on the Mount, but no one is cool with a Savior on a cross. Everyone is cool with the Sermon on the Mount, but nobody's cool with a Savior on a cross. Because when there's a Sermon on the Mount, you can do something. There's a Savior on a cross, you can't do anything. You don't have debt, you're bankrupt. 100% completely bankrupt. So here's the question. If Jesus knew that we were going to reject him, why did he show up then? Why, Why would he put himself through it? Well, Jesus at the cross went through the ultimate storm so that by faith in him, we might be able to go through the smaller ones. I know Jesus is going to be faithful in whatever storm I'm going through right now, whether it's cancer or money issues or a prodigal, whatever it is. I know he's going to be faithful in the smaller storm because he was already faithful in the greatest one. Why am I going to doubt him now? Jesus uh, left his stability. He entered into our instability so that we might experience stability. That's what he did. So now we have a rock foundation He died like someone who had lived his life on sand so that we might live like people who can build their life on rock. He was rejected so that we might be accepted. That's what this passage is telling us. And once you understand that, listen, once you understand that Jesus is your rock, it changes you in three ways. It changes your past, it changes your present, and it changes your future. Here's how it changes your past. Once you understand that Jesus is your rock, whether you have a good past or a bad past, your past doesn't matter anymore. Paul in Philippians 3, he had a, if anyone had a track record, if there's anyone that could have earned heaven, was Paul. In Philippians 3, Paul lists every single thing he did for God. At the end of the list, he says, I count it all as loss. All the effort that I put in doesn't matter because all that stuff I was doing was on, my, on the sand I was living on. Now that I'm on the rock, it doesn't matter what I did because my past doesn't matter anymore. So whether there's good or bad, your past doesn't matter anymore. But it doesn't just change your past, it also changes your present. Here's why it changes your present. One of the things that happens, okay, this is what's beautiful about the gospel, when you are building your life on the rock and you understand that your acceptance and your approval and your forgiveness is found in Jesus and not in yourself, when you understand that, when you understand that the Sermon on the Mount is not about go and do, but I've already done, right? It's not about do, it's about done. When, When you understand that, It changes how you live in the present because here's what happens. If I am living on the rock, then there's no success that can make me conceited and there's no suffering that can crush me. See, when you're living on sand and you're working your own magic, when success comes, you get conceited. When suffering comes, you get crushed. But when you're on the rock, success comes. Success doesn't make you conceited because Jesus had to die for you. That's how sinful and broken you were. I can never let success get to me because he had to die for me. But then suffering never crushes me because he was glad to die for me. Success doesn't make me conceited because he had to die. Suffering doesn't crush me because he was glad to die. Come on. But then it changes. So it changes your, your, your past, right? Then it changes your present. Oh, and one more thing about the present. Uh, one of the things that happens with the religious people on sand is that they're trying so hard to obey God. They're trying so hard to do good things and give money and pray, and I'm going to just save myself, and I'm going to just do it, and I got it. That, that one, of the thing, one of the lies they believe is that their fruit, what they're doing externally, will work its way in. So, 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 so they see fruit not as a sign of life, but as the source of life, okay? Okay? They're saying, I'm going to try to obey because the more I obey, that'll work its way in. That's not how the gospel works, people. Jesus transforms you from the inside out, then you start to transform from the inside out, not from the outside in. So your fruit is not the source of life, it's the sign of life. Okay? So it changes your past, it changes your present, and then it changes your future. Here's why it changes your future, because whatever you are building your life on, I don't care if it's your career, I don't care if it's your kids, I don't care if it's your romance, I don't care if it's your education, whatever you are building your life on, that thing will eventually disappear. Money will go away, your career will end, your family will die, your health will fade, and your beauty will disappear one day. There's nothing more awkward than a woman who found their their identity, their foundation in beauty, and they're 65 years old, and they're acting on Facebook like they're 25 still because they want someone to give them some affirmation. All the things that you're building your life on will go away. And the only foundation that will stand any storm is Jesus. And like I said earlier, what's crazy about Jesus is that not only will it withstand any storm, but the more you suffer, the more you're driven into it. The more it confirms the decision you made was the right one. It changes your past, your present, and your future. And so the question is, what are you going to choose today? Listen, I don't know if it's your first time here or your eighth time here, but you got to make a decision at some point. And one day, I don't know when you're going to stand before God. I don't know how many storms God's going to send you way, but one day you're going to experience the ultimate storm. And maybe, maybe you've never heard any of this before. Maybe you didn't know you were a foolish builder. But you know what? You don't have that excuse anymore. God's going to look at you and say, what did you decide? Okay? So if you haven't made that decision, make that decision. Because Jesus already made that decision for you. Choose him because he already chose you. As I conclude, I want to finish with this famous uh, hymn. We're going to sing part of it in our our final song, but I think it summarizes not just the sermon today, but the entire series. Here's what it says. It says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. When darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, in every storm, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand.